Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. And show the world your heart. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart. Welcome. You're listening to Art on the Air on WVLP 103.1 FM and Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM, our weekly program covering arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City. Aloha, everyone. We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Our theme music is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Our underwriters for Art in the Air are Valparaiso University's Brower Museum, regional art patron Mary LeVan, and our landlord, Walt Breidinger of Paragon Investments. Thank you for your generous support. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant through South Shore Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thanks to Greg Kovach, WVLP's station manager, and Tom Maloney, Vice President of Radio Operations at Lakeshore Public Radio. Art in the Air streams live at WVLP.org and is rebroadcast on Monday at 5 p.m. Plus is also heard on Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, every Sunday at 7 p.m., also streaming live at lakeshorepublicradio.org and is available on Lakeshore Public Radio's website as a podcast. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Radio. Information about Art in the Air is available at our website, breck.com slash AOTA. That's breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com slash AOTA. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our show is available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for information about upcoming shows and interviews. If you're interested in being a guest or sending us information about your arts, arts-related event, exhibit, please email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com, or through our Facebook page. Art in the Air is always looking for financial support. We'd like to thank our current supporters. If you're looking to support Art in the Air, Esther and I especially would invite you to become an underwriter of this program in particular. We have information on our website at breck.com slash AOTA. You can find out support information there. So don't just be an Art on the Air listener. Become a supporter or underwriter in whatever amount you're able to do so so we continue to bring you this great content and this great local programming. And like I say every week, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. And you'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air. And Art on the Air Spotlight, we'd like to welcome from South Shore Arts, Kelly Freeman, who's the Executive Assistant and the Region 1 Representative for the Indiana Arts Commission, and which makes her uh, the new Donna Catalano representing the grant funding. Kelly, welcome to Art on the Air Spotlight. Good afternoon, and thanks for having me on your show today. Welcome. Well, we'd like you to talk about, because it is grant season in uh, January here as we get up, and there's a whole bunch of things going on. So kind of bring us up to date on uh, grants for the new fiscal year. Sure. Well, let me start off by just saying that as a regional arts partner, I represent Region 1, and Region 1 includes Lake Porter and LaPorte counties. Um, With that, I work alongside the Indiana Arts Commission to promote and expand participation in the arts in Indiana by providing access and art services and funding opportunities. So, for example, why someone would want to reach out to me as a regional arts partner is you know, to find an artist to work in your community, and a couple of good examples that I have of that... um, I've had communities uh, reach out to me looking for a uh, muralist 
I've had other communities looking for um, individual artists to lead arts-related projects and workshops. And really, the most important reason uh, to reach out to me is um, to explore funding opportunities available. And I also provide assistance when applying for the arts organization and project support grants that are made available through the Indiana Arts Commission. And that's exactly why I'm here to um, speak with you both today. Excellent. Now, uh, there are some changes. We won't go into all of them because it's just not enough time. But, uh, you know, COVID has impacted the arts funding. Tell us a little bit uh, just about that and then, you know, how they're mitigating that and you're mitigating that. Sure. Well, let me just start off by saying that, you know, arts organizations are important public assets to our communities. Um, That being said, you know, not only do they bind us together and preserve our history, but they also reflect who we are and they inspire our future. And right now in these unique times, um, arts organizations, they're just striving to survive. They're reinventing themselves, they're adapting. And with that being said, you know, the thought of going through the process of applying for a grant, even though the funds are desperately needed, can be pretty overwhelming. And that's where I come in as the um, regional arts partner to help out. Um, There have been some changes in the um, process to simplify and um, The two grants that we have available are arts organization support and arts project support. And I'd like to start off with the um, arts organization support, if I if I may. Please go right ahead. Yes. So the arts organization support grants provide annual operating support for ongoing artistic and administrative functions of eligible arts organizations during the grant period. So who qualifies for this grant? Well, an arts organization to be eligible for the support grant, uh, they must be an organization whose primary purpose is arts producing, promoting, and teaching organizations. And some examples of this would be um, significant evidence that the organization is viewed as an arts organization by its community. Um, We would want to um, make sure that the organization's core purpose, mission, and focus is arts. Majority of their public programs and their arts programs occur regularly and schedule frequently throughout the year, of course, during a non-pandemic year, (laughs) (laughs) and then um, provide significant, verifiable arts educational focus-based programming. And there's so many more examples um, that I can give on that. Some of the changes, again, um, the IAC recognizes its role in helping to ensure that these public assets persevere. So they, too, are reinventing, re-envisioning Uh, to meet the needs of our sector in the state, such as they adjusted the uh, AOS support program to responsibly respond to today's times. So, for example, the uh, application has been abbreviated and streamlined to better understand the applicant's organization's current operational activity and resiliency. So they're basing this on the extent to which the organization demonstrates that it is operating and will continue to operate during the funding period. And a few of the minimum requirements um, would be to hold regular board meetings, conduct ongoing planning, for example, reopening strategic programming, um, continue regular communication with your constituents and supporters, which is incredibly important, and then to provide projected income expenses for the current fiscal year and financial statement from the most recently completed fiscal year. And what else, uh, what other funding is available? We've got just about a minute left here, but then how to contact you. So the arts program uh, project support is also available, and that's open to Indiana 501c3 nonprofit organizations. And these applicants can um, request up to $5,000 in support for their arts project. Um, To reach me, 
um, you can contact me via email at kelly at southshoreartsonline.org. You can also go to southshoreartsonline.org. On our website, uh, we have a square apply for a grant. It's on our front page. And it has all the information you need, along with what I just mentioned. There's links to valuable upcoming webinars that are also hosted by the IAC that will give you an in-depth look on the um, FY22 grant information sessions and uh, for both AOS and APS. And those are coming up in February. Well, I think that covers it all. And welcome for your first uh, debut uh, uh, on Art in the Air Spotlight. That's Kelly Freeman, Executive Assistant for South Shore Arts and Region 1 Representative. Kelly, thanks so much for coming to the show and tell us all about grants and what's coming up this next year. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. And we'd like to welcome to Art in the Air a writer, editor, teacher, director, actress, improviser, and photographer. Uh, she studied radio, television, film at the University of Maryland, College Park. Uh, she's graduated John Hopkins Writing Seminars and many, many more things and uh, goes on with lots of things. And, of course, right now she's coming to us from the north woods of Wisconsin. Please welcome to Art in the Air, Parker Sterling. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Aloha. So, Parker, Aloha. we'd like you to tell our audience a little bit about uh, all your background, uh, like where you grew up. Uh, I always like to say from where you were to where you are now. So I grew up in um, East Baltimore and uh, not far from the Chesapeake Bay and uh, got um, public education, you know, um, started writing because of a great writing teacher I had in high school. Uh, you know, sometimes it's just that one teacher who inspires you and pushes you on. And she was that. And then I went uh, and uh, decided anyway to go into radio, television and film because um, I was going to be a documentarian for PBS. And that <laughs> that didn't happen. I ended up working in corporate video. Um, didn't like that particularly. So then I went back to writing and <clears throat> into teaching. And the radio work I did was for Pacifica Radio uh, Network. So I did volunteer radio interviews and shows. At that time, um, or, or along the way, I started getting involved in theater as an actor uh, in community theater in Baltimore. And never imagined that that was going to be my mainstay. <clears throat> but it was a continuous thread throughout my life that I came back to. So I bumped around, moved to, moved to Texas, moved to Arizona, um, uh, lived in Indiana, uh, and listened. It was, a, as they say, region rat for 10 years and um, really enjoyed uh, being part of the, um, the arts uh, scene there and started learning improv at Second City. In Chicago, I uh, started uh, my formal acting training, uh, Meisner training in Chicago, and uh, really enjoyed having both the access to Chicago's substantial uh, arts organizations, from the Art Institute to the Symphony to the Opera, uh, as well as uh, living in in the uh, in the woods and along the lakeshore of Michigan and looking at those big oak trees. So I felt like I had the best of both worlds, you know, the dunes and Chicago. 
for 10 years, also saw phenomenal theater. And during that time, and acted in Chicago, and during that time, I, I suppose then I started to really look much more seriously at playwriting and acting and directing. Because what I was seeing was such, so very fine productions that it was just pushing uh, my boat, if you will, along the current toward that shore. So now I'm, um, I've directed uh, in person up here and online through Act Your Page and uh, started an improv troupe here. Like many live arts, we have been very affected by the epidemic. I can't, um, I know people hear that. It is an understatement to say that this epidemic has been bone crushing to the, to the performing arts. Um, while some forms have been able to survive through online sales um, and presentations, this live arts have suffered with this epidemic. <clears throat> yeah, you've made it much easier, though, with actor page. I can't tell you how much joy it has given me. I mean, it's just like been a glimmer and I look so forward to it. And that was a, a beautiful transition that really worked. I mean, it does help to fulfill that gap of not being live. That's and very, that's very good to hear. Uh, some people <clears throat> have, that has been a transition for them to watch virtual theater. Um, others have refused simply just, you know, I'm, it's not, I'm not going to participate in that. That's the, that's like bad television. I've heard the comment made. That's just bad television. Um, the problem was, the problem is that the arts always struggle anyway. And we have a very different paradigm here in the United States than, for instance, France or Germany, where state-supported arts or, you know, artists and organizations are state-supported. And there is a cushion and a safety net for economic downturns or any problems. Here, artists are always scrambling, as we were talking, you know, about for grants, for support, for a little tiny pot that everyone's competing for. And it, it has to change. You know, I believe that any healthy democracy has a healthy arts culture. And you say that because the NEA, believe it or not, is actually a very small part of your tax. I did a documentary in the 90s and was actually in response to the Mapplethorpe thing and what we were doing. And when we research, it's, it's like a few cents of your whole tax dollars makes up with the NEA and the actually uh, humanities and all those different things that are government. Yeah, we are way behind other, you know, democracies in terms of supporting the arts. And I'm not sure why that is, but... Uh, and it seems like there's always a, a move in Congress at some point that, that gets saved or uh, to do away with the NEA and PBS and NPR and all those types of things. So it's, it's kind of a shame. Well, and it, trans and it even transfers to education. So right. the first, when they start looking at cutting school programs, it's music, it's arts, <laughs> it's dance, it's theater. Always. Yeah. You know, first, the first be lined up to be, to be eliminated as though that is not as valuable as math, science, you know, reading. And so what we say by doing that is that the human expression in all its forms um, should be limited to this and uh, pigeonholed to that. 
and that cultural expression has no real value. Right. They they seem to ignore the complementary factor for all of it. I mean, you teach math through the arts. I mean, it's all about, it's all art and science are so intermingled. They are. Well, we had a guest on before that brought on about uh, Leonardo da Vinci, a great scientist, but also an artist, a musician. He had, he brought the whole package inventor. together, you know, an inventor. So he brought all these pa- things together. So yeah, uh, they're not co- completely mutually exclusive. Arts are very, very important. And uh, of course, that's one thing we like to promote in our program here is uh, putting a variety of arts out there. You do. And, I, and I've, I've heard you. And yes, and so the Renaissance people like da Vinci um, who embrace arts and sciences. You know, you find that. You find that there are people who are fully embracing. It's hard to listen to Bach. <laughs> and not think of the mathematical proportions oh yes. of that of those compositions, or so, just the amount of math that artists need to use to produce their work. Exactly right, right, exactly right. To understand the scale, the scaling um, that, or is, just ceramics mixing the right. I mean, there's so much um, measuring and chemistry involved. Mm-hmm. I want to jump so, back to your second city experience. Uh, did you go through the entire training program and then go into conservatory? I or? went. I went to the be- through, beginning through advanced, and um, and then I uh, came to. There was a Northwest Improv uh, troupe that I studied with as well, and um, then I when I got here, I started teaching through the. We have a technical college up here. It's kind of like Ivy Tech. Um, so I started teaching improv through the technical college, and after the class ended, people were like, "Well, we kind of want this to continue," so it did. Excellent. And um, and we get um, we did get together um, before COVID, and I hope my hope is that we will again this year. Can you tell us uh, like how what you do with your act uh, act your page or yeah sure. act your page sure like what, what so with act your page what we we do two things um, primarily one is we we take original scripts that playwrights from all over are working on some of them are Chicago based some are uh, in New York some I've had a playwright from New Zealand uh, Australia and then we um, we look at the scripts and if I have the cast in the troupe. Uh, I approach the playwright and say, you know, here are the dates we are looking at. Um, You know, do you have an updated script or should we use this and is it a go? And and when it's a go, then we start rehearsing. Uh, There are are other virtual theater companies um, and they have a variety of processes, but, but that's mine. I'd like to get at least a couple of rehearsals in, including a tech rehearsal. Um, as much as possible, I try to enhance the Zoom process by, you know, with music or sound effects and minimal um, narrative insertion, meaning I'm not reading, dial- I'm not reading scene descriptions um, and, and uh, intervening with that process. Uh, and then the other thing we do is we'll look at classical works. And some of my uh, my actors are from all over as well. Uh, New York, Seattle, Chicago, all over. And uh, I have equity and non-equity. And, you know, they've been idle. 
through this process. Um, and they don't want to, you know, they want to keep their chops. So we will do uh, scene studies of classical works that they might audition for at some point and or that they would use for a demo reel. So if you're an actor and you're listening to this and you want to work with a pretty gentle and encouraging director, <laughs> um, you should contact me. And we'll have Parker's um, link on our, our, our page. Yeah, so you can yeah. just click on that and get Be to her. Um, I am... Um, I, I, I think everyone fully realizes the limitations of the Zoom in terms of as a theatrical medium. Uh, that said, what has made me really heartened, comments like Esther just made, is that there are people who have said to me, I forgot this was a Zoom production. That's well, be how well, because your actors are taking such good care with their props and how they're doing it. It's not just a cold, I'm just sitting here reading. They're actually acting it, and you feel it. I mean, you feel the, I feel the passion of it. Um, and when they, when they take the time to enhance my, you know, the audience's experience by adding the props, by working together, it's really, it was, it's wonderful. I always leave enriched. Thank you for saying that. I feel very blessed to have the actors I have. They are um, just wonderful. They're talented. They're dedicated. They they do. They use filters. They use makeup. They prop chain. You know, they go through all of it. And sometimes with maybe a minute or two to, right. to make a change. Um, I, I got to... Um, I learned about Actor Page through uh, my dear friend, Laura Ford Scruggs, mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. is just a brilliant genius mm -hmm. she is um and so yeah you know i'm so grateful that you know she she's so good with her social media that you know she put the you know she put actor page out there she she is we've done a multiple uh, many of her scripts and um she's very good at promoting other people's work and shining a light on um, which, you know, I've said to her, you're like the ideal playwright. You, it, it you know, this can kind of become a narcissist game, right? Because it's, you know, what about me? What about me? What about my program? But Laura has such a esprit de corps. Yeah. And she will shine a light on a little tiny production nobody's ever heard on. Of, yeah, she's um, so generous. She's very generous of spirit and uh, something that is completely selfless. Right. You know, she posted about a <clears throat> quilting exhibit at the Art Institute, beautiful quilting by an African-American artist. She'll just do that, um, you know, every day. Well, so, she some. just bubbles. She just bubbles over <laughs> with joy, you know, and it's not, you know, it's not it's genuine. It's you know? genuine. Parker, where do you uh, the actors that appear in those? Are they from uh, your your little niche of the Northwoods or they come so, from all over? They're all over. Okay. Yeah. So they're equity and non-equity. New York. I've got some New York City, Long Island, Seattle, Chicago. Um, yes, we do have some actors here in the Northwoods. <laughs> um, you know, I'm. This is the third coast, right? right. <laughs> kind of, sorta. Well, like in <laughs> uh, the central part, there's North Lake Playhouse. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Uh, say that again. North Lake Playhouse. It's uh, just uh, in Vilas County, just south. They have a. Oh, I don't know about. Oh that. my gosh! No. Yeah, it's like they do mostly like a whole summer stock type thing. I okay. think it's all non-equity, but they do have like national auditions, and it's been there for. Oh, I don't know. I, I will have to look this up. Yeah, it's okay. uh, just so, so just outside of. Uh, Manaqua. 
Uh, it's, it's south of Minocqua. I think it's Hurley or something like that. Or um, Well, that's north. Hurley would be north. No, north, north, yeah. North. It's further south, whatever. Uh, um, Hazelcrest. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. It's in Hazel that area. Okay, yeah. I will look that up. Um, we have um, two theaters um, in, uh, the nor- in the Chequaguaman Bay area. Um, uh, Chequaguaman Theater Association and Stage North. And then Ironwood to our east, about 45 minutes. We have a theater there too, Theater North. And then Duluth to the west, 90 minutes. Of, we've got multiple theaters there. Um, and uh, those would be larger stages, uh, larger productions tend to be. But in terms of an arts uh, colony here in terms of artists, it's, it's a fairly rich area, particularly for visual artists. Um, and we have a pretty active, uh, our Chicago Bay uh, Arts Commission is pretty active. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see where that goes over the few years, but they created a thing called Authentic Superior this year that would allow ceramic, um, you know, makers, the painters, etc., to have to vend their work to the uh, online public. So I I think that's only going to grow because it's just such a naturally gorgeous area. So tell us about the uh, writer and your writing workshops and how that's working out. The writing workshops are, um, they they also started at WITC, our our technical college, and then they just, um, they grew beyond that uh, in terms of, when COVID hit, we went online, I was able to incorporate, uh, to make it international. So I have friends in Turkey who join us and I have a friend in China who I hope is going to join us. So it's multi-genre, uh, fiction, nonfiction, um, you know, essay writing, poetry. Um, I don't have any playwriters, playwrights yet. So it's ongoing. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. We meet at least once a month, generally twice, a couple hours, we talk about the craft. We focus on some aspect of the craft and then we workshop. That's a very gentle, positive, constructive experience. Um, I threw out my bachelor's degree and some postgraduate education and my graduate degree at Hopkins. I saw the good, the bad, and the ugly of writing workshops. And so what I've tried to do is shape an experience where everyone feels empowered, but also it's not a culture of um, soft, you know, uh, damning with faint praise. In other words, it's we are trying to get to the core of, of what's really working in a piece and trying to exalt or um, in some way encourage the writer to get to that level throughout the piece. One thing I always like to ask is, you know, how obviously you've already addressed this, how COVID's impacted you. Uh, so tell us a little bit of that personally, but also what are you looking forward to when it's all over? So personally, I, I lost quite a bit of income last year um, with tutor. I tutor and I write and I edit and that's, I'm a freelancer and that's how I make my income. And that's one of those things that's also the first to go. When people are in an, you know, a crunch, they're going to cut out tutoring and they're going to cut out you know, writing, consulting, and all that. Um, what I look forward to is, um, because it's been such a crazy time in so many ways, I look forward to people returning to their humanity and um, to a humane 
approach and to really maybe realizing that all the things that went silent and dark, the theaters, you know, the galleries, the cafes, how valuable those places are, how really critical those places are. And that if the, if the epidemic can teach that, if it can teach us how the arts and communication and social interact, how important that is, that, that would be good. That would be really good. Tell us about some of the roles that you portrayed uh, along the way. Have you done any musical theater or has this all been straight? I don't do music. Yeah, yeah, I play. <laughs> I do play instruments, but I'm not, I, I, I'm not, I'm not a uh, trained singer. Okay. Um, so I've, <laughs> I've, I've played, um, you know, a, a mixture of people. One of the, one of the people I played in, in Chicago was a, um, uh, a soccer, a football, right? And the, the British called football coach. And that was fun. She was kind of a hardcore realist. Um, so that was fun. Um, I've also portrayed, uh, I started off acting by portraying a character in uh, Lillian Hellman's play, The Autumn Garden. It was a great character um, named uh, Sophie Tuckerman. And Hellman, um, She's one of these writers that I hope people rediscover at some point because she's an amazing playwright. Uh, along the way, I've played a Joel Grey-like character, an MC in Cabaret. That was fun. Um, an androgynous, uh, you know, Joel Grey, uh, like in cab movie Cabaret. And, um, I, you know, I've play, I played a... a, a um, a wife who, you know, <laughs> realizes her, her husband is gay. I mean, you know, it's what, what's great about acting is you get to go there. You just get to go there, whatever it is. And the last thing I did, we did a production, one of Laura's friends, uh, Adam Eugene Hurst, had a play called Matthew Threehorn about bullying and about accepting people. It's a kid's play about accepting people for who they are. And I got to play this character um, named Anne, who um, is the first to accept this new student who has three horns. <laughs> so that was really a, a delight. But um, yeah. So I have a completely untheater related sure. question. So did your gardening and the master gardener stuff, did that start at Purdue? Any chance? or it? You know, it did not. Although at Purdue... Um, in Indiana, I went for the Master Naturalist training, and uh, which is a really great program, and also became a community tree steward in Indiana. Um, so those are two very fine programs. I hope they still exist. Oh yeah, the, in, in, yeah. In Indiana, but I started my Master Gardening training in um, Maryland, my home state, and then I got my permaculture design degree uh, through Midwest Permaculture. Um, and that was done at the MREA in Wisconsin, so the Midwest Renewable Energy Association. Um, I'd like and to I'd like to blend someday my love of the arts and permaculture. I'd like to somehow blend. I don't know if you've ever been to Spring Green, uh, yeah. okay, to the theater. So I that's kind of like a dream of mine to have something that's both beautiful when you walk in, and then you have this beautiful theatrical experience too. Well, and you know they are naturally. It's so it's so wonderful to see everybody turning everything into garden, you know, and to yes. think into you know. I've been participating in a couple of the master gardener online stuff, you know, and it's just like so 
Wonderful. I mean, now we're home and we're able to, or home more. A lot of us are going to have to transition what we did pre-COVID to, you know, what That's our right. futures are going to be. The dunes, the dunes was and could be, again, one of the most biologically rich areas in the world. Well, Parker, we have just about a minute left. We want to give you a chance to wrap up and also tell us how people can reach you if they want to uh, participate in all the things you're involved with. So I'm um, on Facebook, uh, Fish Liquor Improv. So all one word, Fish Liquor. <laughs> um, I know, you know we didn't even touch on. <laughs> we wanted a name that made people laugh. So uh, uh, Fish Liquor Improv on uh, Facebook and Please, yeah, reach out to me. Um, Act Your Page, we also have a YouTube channel. Act Your Page and Fish Liquor and Pop on YouTube. So hope to hear from my actors and playwrights and anyone interested in participating. Well, we really appreciate you coming on Art There. That's Parker Sterling up in the north woods of Wisconsin. Uh, writer, editor, teacher, director, actress, improviser, and so much more. Thank you so much, Parker, for being on Art on the Air. M my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM, and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. We'd like to welcome to Art on the Air Tom O'Reed, whose work has been on display at the Smithsonian, the American Craft Museum in New York, and countless galleries around the globe. He's one of the country's most unique artists and craftsmen. His work has been enjoyed by the likes of Buckingham Palace and presidents of the United States and collectors all over the world. Tom, welcome to Art on the Air. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Well, Tom, we usually like to have our guests tell us uh, their origin story, uh, where they grew up and everything, like how you got from where you were to where you are now. So tell us all about that. Mm -hmm. Well, I grew up in, uh, born and raised in Southern California, San Diego to be specific. Uh, developed a very uh, inherent, strong interest in music as a boy and... Uh, Pursued that, that aggressively. Was that family? Was that family? Did you were your parents musical? N no, quite quite to the contrary. It's kind of interesting. They, uh, I remember being uh, maybe seven years old, and my mother <clears throat> trying to uh, do something musically, and she couldn't keep time to save her soul, and being very frustrated with her for the fact that she wasn't right on time, you know, and. Uh, so, yeah, they didn't have much of uh, uh, music, but for some reason it was inherent with me. And uh, that ultimately, through all the obvious things, a uh, teenager you know, with my own rock band, being in the school <laughs> band, uh, uh, so on and so forth, uh, you know, ultimately led me to uh, going to the College of Life uh, and... And I got involved. I was always very good at running the business side of the band and also very good at administrating the just the business part of music as well as the artistic part. And so I got involved in the actual music business, uh, the ultimately signing bands and musicians to recording contracts in Hollywood. Um, probably the, the biggest name you would know of that I uh, was, uh, participated in making uh, happen would be Cindy Lauper. Okay, um, yeah. Another, another large name that I was yep. involved with was Michael Bolton and so on, but lots of, lots of more kind of rock bands and so on. Uh, so you're an A&R type person? Exactly, but okay. I was independent. I didn't want to be 
working for a label. I did it independently. I served as the middleman between the artist and the actual A&R person at the record companies. And so I was the go-between. It was a very frustrating job. It's a very frustrating business, or at least it was, because what you soon learn is talent and music is the last, the least of their interests. (laughs) Um, You know, they want to know what your image is, whether you're crazy, whether you're sexy, whether you're, you know, something for the audience to grab onto other than the music itself. Um, And I used to always jokingly say, are there no fat, ugly girls that know how to sing or just Beyonce, you know? Uh, So I really got tired of having to worry about all that other stuff that had nothing to do with the creative process of being music or quality, quality music. And in my frustration, I, uh, I really just walked away uh, out of absolute frustration. I made good money. I met lots of at least interesting people, lots of famous people, but that, that doesn't count for a lot. Um, Listen to a lot of music. Yeah. And, and yeah, I got access to a lot of music, Uh, but I walked away and I went back to San Diego and uh, I was uh, meandering around in the mountains east of San Diego because I was free as a bird to do so. And I was driving slowly down this road and I look up and there's a little stone cottage looking place and a little five foot tall man standing out in front with a beard down to his belly. Kind of looked like a gnome. And I, uh, my personality is, you know, not that passive. So I just pulled over and I said, please forgive me, sir, but this is quite an interesting picture right here. You in front of this building, he had a cup of coffee and I said, do you mind me asking what, you know, what are you all about? And then he went on, he was kind and he went on to explain, well, I'm kind of intentionally trying to cheat contemporary society and, and live a very Renaissance kind of lifestyle. I live in this little one room stone cottage and I, I'd make everything by hand and it was just fascinating as could be. He invited me in and what, what attracted me more than anything was he made his own tools and so he had these, what you call malls, which is nothing more than a, a big wooden apparatus to hammer things. And they were all hand carved and it was just fascinating to me. So anyway, I walked away from that. And that night I remember laying in bed and just being kind of consumed by the thought of these tools. Well, I wanted to do something creative. The music, music was the creative thing I was interested in, but it couldn't just be creative. It had to have these other elements to it to satisfy the overly commercialized nature of music and entertainment, um, which I felt ruined the creative part of the process, at least for me. So how can I do something creative and have the creative part of it be the thing that matters? So I laid there all night and I literally dreamed up the, the, uh, the idea laying there uh, about making wooden cooking utensils. One, from a business point of view, it appeals to almost everybody has to use a wooden tool to cook with. Um, How can I make a wooden spoon interesting? And I thought, well, what if I do them in a sculptural manner and make them really finely finish them and, and just make them interesting above and beyond being a utilitarian tool? 
In other words, function and art working hand in hand. Uh, I, I rationalized it that 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 function and art rationale exists in a lot of areas of life. I mean, a Ferrari is a rolling piece of art, if you, at least if you ask me. And uh, so I dreamed up this idea. Now, mind you, I didn't have a day of experience at woodworking. I, I wouldn't know the first thing about woodworking, and I still don't. Um, but a wooden spoon was the impetus to try to figure it out. So I start, started that process, which took, took a long time. I ultimately started making these wooden cooking utensils that were turning out quite nice, and people were reacting to them right out of the box. And uh, that told me, hey, hey, I'm on to something here. And so I just kept going. Basically, I just kept going with it. And uh, um, lots of interesting business uh, things associated with it as time goes by. In, a, in other words, I started making these variety of different shapes and functions. And then I gave them names. And I realized <laughs> that by giving them, cause, uh, because I did this, Having my music experience, I said, when has a band ever made an album with 10 songs on it that you didn't find each piece of music, each song was named? And I thought, well, why don't I do the same thing with my tools? So it's interesting how I came to that conclusion, but it's turned out to be accidentally good marketing over the years mm -hmm. for when people stand in front of my work and they pick a piece up, they're so different looking that you don't know what it is. You're drawn to it because it's finely finished and it's kind of fascinating in a way, but you don't know what it is when you pick it up. Then you look at the tag on it and it says that it uh, is made out of a exotic wood from some far off land called Pudumuju. <laughs> and the function is it's a pudding plopper. Uh, so, you know, I put my tongue firmly in my cheek and use expensive wood and use a high standard of craftsmanship. At least that's my goal with each piece. And then kind of take the snootiness out of it by giving it a name like a stroganoffster or a pudding plopper, as I said, or, or one of my favorites is for that last bit of mayonnaise at the bottom of the jar. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Scooping, scooping uh, that uh, last bit. <laughs> right. Just for the last little bit or, or a, uh, or a, uh, olive picker. That's another favorite. Olive, olive thief is what I usually call it. Oh, olive olive thief. thief, yes. Yeah. And then uh, there's a, always the uh, fried bologna flipper and uh, and a little teeny, teeny, tiny spreader. And then a little teeny, tiny spreader and then call it a peanut butter spreader for dieters. <laughs> you know, so... You have it's a bit so, of fun with it. It's it, so beautiful. It's, it's entertaining, yeah. So. Well, so, so when you approach a piece of wood, Tom, um, you know, walk us through that. Because the handles, I mean, you know, this is just, it's radio, so nobody has the visual. But but right. the handles on your pieces are shaped so, I mean, the whole piece is just elegant. And you want to hold it. And, and the woods are so attractive. You're drawn to it, but but how? What do you do when you see that block of wood? Well, I mean, first off, what you just said is a dream come true for me. When I set out to do this, that was what I was striving to achieve. And for you to think that and, and say those words unsolicited uh, is very flattering. So thank you. 
You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM, and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. Um, they, yeah, and I make I make everything under the sun. I, I have no templates. I have no tracing devices. I literally approach it like an like a an, uh, painter would approach a canvas every time. You know, you're, you who wants to paint by numbers or copy somebody else's thing? You want to just be free. And so I've approached mine like that. And when I approach a block of wood, as you say, whether it be a block of wood or a tree limb or some form of wood, it's a very free-spirited thing. And I think what you're asking me is would be kind of like asking James Taylor, you know, hey, what made you think to uh, to uh, sing Sweet Baby James, you know? Uh, it's kind of a hard thing to answer for a creative person. I don't know that I can answer it with any hard and fast formula. I understand it because when I approach something, it kind of, you just know it's intuitive what to do next with it. But once you do do start on that block of wood, do you just start with your tools? Do do, Do you draw on the piece of wood? Do you, how do you, because at that point you, are you, do you know which way the grain is going to go at that point? Are you? <laughs> well, I do know. Yeah, I do know which way. You always got to. There's some. There's some things that are matters of fact. If you don't make a a tool uh, with the grain, in other words, the grain running up and down. If yeah, you I go use, across side to side, it's going to break because yeah, I use grain. the wrong word. I use the wrong word. Yeah. I meant the, the pattern of the wood, not the grain. Right. No, and fr- frankly, sometimes uh, you are so pleasantly surprised when you start carving into it because it didn't show itself to be all of what it was on the outer surface. And wood does oxidize over time. So once you dig into it, it's, oh, my God, look at this, you know. And, and, and oftentimes, I think what you're looking for here is, you know, does does the idea for what it is or where it's going to go or what shape it's going to manifest itself, does it, uh, is it predetermined or is it a fluid thing that alters as you go along? And by all means, it alters as you go along. Yeah. Uh, you may have an idea, but you get in there or, or maybe you run into a knot and you either decide to incorporate that knot and go out a little wider, or maybe you decide to carve that knot away because right. it's wasn't going to work well but yeah it's it is a uh, a fluid process yeah it is absolutely. sort of like i do a lot of i do stone sculpture and and that's exactly what it is you have no idea really yeah. what it's going to be until you start sanding away and working at it and you right. have to go with the intrinsic properties of whatever piece of stone it is you know because there are now surprises. that's surprises that's one element way. of it right exactly that's one element of it the other element of it is when you do something as I have done for now 33 and a half years, you find out what certain things of what you do, uh, what gets, you know, maybe the biggest reactions. And so from a business point of view, you're a fool if you don't take notice of the things that get the most universally positive reactions, because I am an artist, but I'm also, this is how I make my living. Uh, so I, I would be foolish to not make the pieces that I know are going to sell and that are going to get a good reaction. But uh, like I said earlier, I don't want to be a slave to just making formulaic 
thing. So even though I might make a pie server today and then I'll make another one tomorrow, they, they, they kind of casually look the same, but they're never the same, no matter how hard you try. Well, maybe um, their, uh, you their know, function is the same, but they're very, de- I mean, they're very that's different right. from each other. And it, again, I give a musical analogy. If I'm Elton John and I have a hit record and I play that song tonight in Indianapolis, Indiana, and tomorrow night I play it in Chicago, I don't care how hard I try, two nights, same song. There's no matter how hard I try, they're not going to be exactly the same, you know. The two queens come into your life, Queen Elizabeth and Julia Child. (laughs) Well, uh, the uh, Elizabeth one, I was in my gallery in Southern California, and a couple of young ladies drove up, parked in the parking lot, and uh, got out, and they looked very... Southern California, they had kind of little summer dresses on. It was a sunny Southern California day. And these two girls, young women, came into the gallery and they started looking around. And as they started talking to each other, they had accents, British accents. I never thought a thing about it. You got to remember, life in Southern California means you see and hear just about every version of humanity that there is. Um, And so we don't think much about that. So these young ladies were looking around, looking around. I gave them time to look, and they ultimately I walked up and introduced myself and told them if I could help them. And so they they asked a bunch of questions. We had lots of interaction, and they ended up choosing quite a number of pieces. I thought, remember thinking, this is, this is a nice sale. This is great. And uh, they laid down their, oh, I don't know, at least a uh, 10 or 12 pieces that they had chosen that they wanted to buy on the counter. And I rang them up and so on and so forth and uh, sent them on their way. And they were just happy as could be and so on. Well, about, um, I don't know, three weeks later, I get a telegram. I've (laughs) never got a telegram in my life. This was peculiar. I got a telegram and upon pursuing it, it's a telegram from Buckingham Palace. (laughs) And the note says... We want to thank you. We were we visited your gallery, and uh, you were so kind. And we love our pieces, and want to thank you for your hospitality. And we wanted you to know that the Queen Mum loves her piece, <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> like she's cooking, right? <laughs> well, they are works of arts, aren't they? You know, Esther. Yeah. Gave, Esther, you handle those his pieces, don't you, in the gallery? Yes. Well, you gave Very us honored to do so. He, she gave gifted it to us, and I just made the connection that that was your work. Uh, and my wife uses it just about every day. So I think we have. Oh, I was, great! Uh, it, I think it's a, a stylish stirrer is what you gave us. But uh, there you it's go. kind of a darker I wood. That name, yeah. Yeah, and it's a it's a darker wood, and I, I just made the connection that uh, that when Esther gave that to us, that's from you. So <laughs> excellent. Yeah, wonderful. Other uh, the other queen. In answer to your question, the other queen being Julia Child, not a not a dissimilar story, but I got a phone call one day from a young woman who said, um, I am Julia Child's assistant and we would like to come to your shop. I said, oh, great. (laughs) And she says, well, we hate to do this and I don't want to come off the wrong way, but, you know, she'd like to be able to shop kind of without interruption, you know? And I said, no, don't you think about it. I will be more than happy to lock the door, put the clothes sign out for, for an hour, you know? So anyway, they we made arrangements and they came and, 
<clears throat> and we did just that. And um, she picked pieces, and it was just such an honor to interact with her and have her give commentary on my work. And she's the one who said spontaneously something that meant the world to me, and I've used it as a company slogan uh, ever since. And she said, um, she said, these pieces are truly a marriage of function and art. <laughs> and I, I thought that was so perfect. And I told her, I said, may I use that? And so now that's been on my, you know, my letterhead and my biography and just about anywhere I can slap it with a quote from Julia Child for all the obvious reasons. Do you have a favorite kind of wood you like to work with? Well, the big picture uh, answer to that is uh, I made a decision early on that I was almost exclusively going to only work in tropical exotic woods. And I don't know that everybody understands what that means. Uh, domestic woods are woods that are you know grown and born and raised right here in the United States. The tropical exotic woods grow in fascinating situations. A great many of them are rainforest woods. A great many of them are desert woods. And that requires me to give a little bit of an explanation about rainforest woods because I was uh, environmentally sensitive from the beginning and didn't want to participate in decimating the rainforest. Uh, <clears throat> first off, I don't use enough wood making spoons to ever <laughs> use one whole tree in my whole lifetime. But uh, I also pay three times the market value of these exotic woods, three times of what you can normally buy it for, for the purpose that extra money goes into reforestation of these trees. So not only, you know, do I feel comfortable using them, I feel good about the fact that I am participating in reforestation of these woods. But yeah, I like the exotic woods for several reasons. They're significantly harder, heavier, and denser. So durability is of no doubt or question. They are always very colorful and fascinating uh, uh, visually by comparison. Our domestic woods are um, nowhere near as hard, heavy, dense, and they don't have anywhere near the, the incredible grains and colors. And, you know, some of these woods are, they just don't look like wood. They're beyond yeah. imagination. No, they're, they're so tight and solid, you know, it's just yeah. really. Yeah. And, and that, that brings me to another important point. You're right. We're on radio and we can't see it. If you could see it, they shine like the hood of a, you know, brand new car. Uh, but there is no finish on them whatsoever because there can't be. Any finish has chemicals, and you wouldn't want to put chemicals into your food. So uh, they shine simply by virtue of my sanding. If you sand enough and, you know, descending finer, finer grits of sandpaper, uh, it's it's more akin to sanding on the uh on a car fender than it is on a piece of wood because these woods are that kind of hard. The harder the wood, the tighter the grain, the tighter the grain. When you sand on it, you get this fine, glossy finish compared to uh, softer woods where you can't achieve that. You know, we've got about a minute and a half left, uh, Tom. Tell us about uh, RWYW, your philosophy. <laughs> well, I worked with a gentleman when I was a younger man who, was, who would best be described as being kind of a crusty old guy. But he, he was tough. He was a tough boss. He was hard on 
me and hard on the people who work for. But, you know, usually those tough, tough people are the people who care. They're tough on you, but they, they do care. They want to see you succeed. They want you to do well. They'll never let you know that they care, but they'll, they'll always kind of keep pushing you. He had a uh, sign on his desk that looked like a nameplate where you would normally in business have a your name and maybe title or something. He had a sign like that that said R-W-Y-W with period after each letter. And he was so tough and kind of cranky, you know, you didn't even want to ask him anything uh, for fear that he'd kind of bite at you. But after I got to know him for a while and worked with him for some time, my curiosity got the better of me. And I said, hey, by the way, what does that mean right there, uh, that RWYW? And he says, it means remember why you work. He says, when you're working and your boss is climbing all over you or you're not happy or it's a hard job and you're miserable and this and that and the other, he says, stop thinking about all that and remember why you work, whether it be you have a wife and kids or you got a boat payment or whatever it is. Remember why you work whenever you're working and, uh, you know, you'll keep things in perspective. Well, I think hope that perspective uh, is uh, not lost on our audience. That's Tom O'Reed, and he's a craftsman uh, with a beautiful functional pieces that he makes. Tom, uh, your uh, website is TomOreed.com if you want to get in touch with him. That's TomOreedAltogether.com. One sure. last thing, my Facebook page is Artistic Wooden Cooking Utensils. Very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on Art in the Year, Tom. Really appreciate it. Thank my you. pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Art in the Air, and we'd like to thank our guests this week. Art in the Air is heard every Friday at 11 a.m. and rebroadcast Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP and Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. Thanks again to Greg Kovach, WVLP Station Manager, and Tom Maloney, Vice President of Radio Operations for Lakeshore Public Radio. Underwriters for Art in the Air are Valparaiso University's Brower Museum, our landlord, Walt Breidinger of Paragon Investments, and Mary LeVan, Arts Patron. Art in the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant and the National Endowment for the Arts. If you're interested in being a guest or send us information about your arts, arts-related event, or exhibit, please email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H, dot com, or contact us through our Facebook page. Your hosts were Larry Breckner and Esther Golden, and we invite you back next week for another episode of Art on the Air. Aloha, everyone. Have a splendid week. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart, express yourself through art, and show the world.